Hello, fellow movie fans. I'm Lily Percy, and I'll be your guide this week as I talk with Dear Sugar's Steve Almond about the groundbreaking 80s movie that changed his life, Ordinary People. If you've seen the movie, you'll soon understand why Steve connected so deeply with it. But if you haven't, don't worry. We're going to provide all the details you need to understand and feel all the feelings. One of the gifts that movies give us is the ability to see ourselves on screen, to maybe see characters or even emotions represented that we haven't ever seen anywhere else, that we can't even talk about or give voice to. And that's something that ordinary people does beautifully. It's really hard to talk about male vulnerability, to talk about depression, to talk about sadness, to talk about not being okay when you're a teenager. And yet the character of Conrad does that in every line that he speaks and in every facial expression and moment of silence that he represents in the film. So what do I do, tell you my dreams? I don't hold much stock in dreams. Now what kind of psychiatrist are you? They all believe in dreams. Really? What's going on? I just feel, I feel so... What? Jumpy, I don't know. How is it with your friends? Is it getting any easier? No, it's still hard. Is any place easy? The hospital was. It was? Why? Because nobody hid anything there. Ordinary People is about a family who is grieving. They're trying to move forward and overcome the loss of their son, who died in a tragic sailboat accident but they're stuck. They can't communicate with each other about the grief, and that makes them unable to connect with each other. Dad, I quit the swim team. What? Carol thought I knew. Of course, why wouldn't I? It happened over a month ago. Quit? When? Where have you been every night? Nowhere. Around. The library, mostly. Why didn't you tell us, Connie? I don't know. I didn't think it mattered. What do you mean? Why wouldn't it matter? Of course it matters. No, that was meant for me, Calvin. What was meant for you? It's really important to try to hurt me, isn't it? Don't you have that backwards? Oh, and how do I hurt you? By embarrassing you in front of a friend? Ordinary People is important for many reasons, one of them being that it was Robert Redford's directorial debut. Another one is that we see Mary Tyler Moore in a way that we've never seen her before. For the first time, not warm and friendly and inviting, and instead a more complicated representation of a mother. You drink too much at parties, Calvin. I'm not drunk. Why did you tell Annie Marshall that Conrad is seeing a psychiatrist? I don't know. Why not? Well, for one thing, I don't think people hear that kind of thing very easily. Oh, come on. For most people, it's a status symbol right up there with going to hear her. Well, I thought your blurting it out like that was in very bad taste. I didn't think not it was Not to in mention bad a taste. violation of privacy. Whose privacy? Our privacy. The family's privacy. I think it is a very private matter. Writer Steve Almond grew up in a family that didn't talk about emotions. So when he saw Ordinary People, it changed his life because he had never seen a family talking to each other in such a vulnerable way. And it made him realize the importance of always vocalizing his own emotions. I'd like to take you back in time for a minute by asking you to, to close your eyes and for 10 seconds think about the first time that you saw Ordinary People. And think about how old you were, where you were, and how it made you feel. And I'll chime in when the 10 seconds are up.
So what memories came up for you? Well, I was probably a freshman in high school. Oh, my God. So Uh, close to Conrad's age. Exactly. And I don't know what my reaction was the first time out. It's become a film that I've absorbed so deeply and it's been so deeply absorbed into my family culture, especially Mm. uh, my brothers and myself, that it's almost impossible for me to figure out what my initial feelings were because so I have so many complicated and intense feelings about it Mm. that have really pervaded. I mean, I guess this is now, what, 37 years later, something like that. And uh, I don't think there's been a year that's gone by, maybe not even a month that's gone by that I haven't thought about that film, that I haven't felt something very intense that came out of that film. And um, I think it's one of the few films that when I return to it at every point in my life, I actually appreciate it more. Hmm. Yeah, you know, when I first learned that you had chosen ordinary people to talk about, it made complete sense to me, considering what I know about your work and and as a devoted fan of Dear Sugars, because you've talked a lot about um, male vulnerability, you know, in your work. And I immediately thought of, you know, the struggle that Calvin and Conrad, Conrad, who is the son played by Timothy Hutton, and Calvin, the father played by Donald Sutherland, the struggle that they both face in being vulnerable. And I noticed watching the movie again last night, this is so interesting to me because I'd never noticed it before, how groundbreaking it was for 1980, that the yeah. men are the only ones that we see vocalize and acknowledge their pain. Yes. The father is the one who suggests, right, that his son goes to therapy. He's the one who worries about him, not the mother. And I'm yep. just so curious as to how that changed the way you viewed yourself as a man and, and the men in your family. Yeah. I mean, so a little deep background here, because I think... In a certain way, this film represents the two halves of my personality. Hmm. My parents were both psychiatrists who later became psychoanalysts. Um, And in a sense, they were very attuned to the inner life. And I was clearly, as a kid, I went to therapy. I was anxious. I was really struggling to feel and make sense of my feelings. Hmm. So I understood that part of the film. But the other part of my family uh, history that I think is less obvious to people is that my family was male dominated. I had a a twin brother and an older brother, two years older. And there was in my family, as there is in every family, Lily, a kind of omerta, a code of silence Mm -hmm. around deep emotion because it's just so painful. So that is really the struggle that plays out in the film. Literally from the first moment of the film, you see this kid, you know, the first shot is him singing in a chorus and he's actually singing. You can hear his voice. He's rising. His voice is rising in song. And we move from that, a quick jump cut to him. Waking up from a nightmare. In bed. That's right. From a nightmare. And he's haunted. And that voice of absolute anguish and guilt and rage and confusion is completely muzzled within him. And what the film captures in a way that is an exaggerated version of what every family struggles with and certainly what my family was struggling with and what I was struggling with is the desire to have the truth come out and a countervening desire to keep it inside and keep it locked in and not let those dangerous, volatile feelings out of the tightly guarded world inside of us. And and you see it in every moment. And what's so uh, striking and, and unusual is that it is a film in which it is the dad who's the compassionate figure who is trying, even though he's 
been acculturated to kind of stiff up her lip and try to keep it all inside. Mm -hmm. He recognizes that his kid's in trouble. And it's really the mom who cannot uh, really forgive him for being the child who survived. She cannot reach across this chasm. She's just in so much pain that she can't even begin to let it out. And it sinks her. All he wants, all he wants is to know that you don't hate him. That's hate him? God, how could I hate him? Mothers don't hate their sons. Is that what he told you? Do you see how you accept what he says with no questions and you can't do the same thing I'm for me, I'm just trying to keep this family God, together. God, I don't know what anyone wants from me anymore. Oh, Nobody wants anything from me. Listen, look, look. We all just want Cal, Connor, everybody. We just want you to be happy. Happy? Yes. Ward, you tell me the definition of happy, huh? But first, you better make sure that your kids are good and safe, that no one's fallen off a horse or been hit by a car or drowned in that swimming pool you're so proud of. Oh, yeah. And then you come to me and tell me how to be happy. And also, you really get a sense in the movie with her character in particular, you know, the dual role she has to play, right, as mother, but then also the public persona she has to keep up. Right. And and made me think about your own relationship with your mother, Barbara, because you've talked a lot about that. And you even did an interview with her when her book came out, The Monster Within, The Hidden Side of Motherhood, yeah. that I thought yeah. was so brave of you to do that publicly, do an interview with your mother. Um, and, you know, it showed how honest and direct your relationship was with your own mother, which is very different from what we see Conrad and Beth uh, exhibit in the movie. And it just made yeah. me curious as to what the journey was like with your own mother to get to where you ended up. Yeah, well, I mean, I have to be honest in saying that the work of my mother's life, in some sense, was understanding maternal ambivalence, that mothers are expected by the entire culture to be warm and loving. Yeah. And uh, I think this is a common experience that women, the moment they become mothers, are expected to have a certain set of feelings, the kind of unconditional love, the emotion that's always ready to flow and nurture and protect and, and lift up their kids. But I think, you know, my mom... I could tell uh, that she was having two experiences. She was a loving mother. She was attendant to us. She she was very warm. Everybody from my, my wife, all my girlfriends, all my friends, they adored Barbara Almond. And she was an incredibly warm, welcoming person. But there was somebody inside of my mom who felt very stifled, very anxious, very marginalized. I could see that she was, she would sometimes would be in the car and she would be whispering to herself. And I knew that it was a kind of anxious whispering that was almost like trying to self-soothe. Um, but it was obvious that there was some deeper set of really complicated and painful feelings that she was having to manage mm -hmm. every moment of the day, in addition to managing her three angry, volatile sons, her, you know, very sweet, but nonetheless kind of self-involved husband. Mm -hmm. And you know, she really took it on the chin. So I think I recognize uh, in Mary Tyler Moore's character a sort of exaggerated version of, I think, what every mother struggles with, which is this onerous, um, completely crushing expectation that mothers perform a certain emotional role, that they do all the emotional labor of managing other people's feelings, even if inside they feel real ambivalence about all of that expectation. So everything was fine until you had the fight with your mother. Then everything was lousy. So what do I do now? Recognize her limitations? You mean like she can't love me? Oh, kiddo, no. Like she can't love you enough? 
I don't blame her for not loving you more than she's able. But she loves my father. I know she loved my brother. Look, maybe she just can't express it the way you'd like her to. Maybe she's just afraid to show you what she feels. You know, a scene that I never noticed before that really struck me last night when I was watching it again um, is early on in the film when Conrad comes downstairs and he says he's not hungry, he doesn't want to eat breakfast. Yep. Beth immediately takes yep. the plate away, dumps the French toast, French toast, and puts it straight in the garbage disposal. And let me tell you a little micro moment in that scene. It may not come across in radio, but what's interesting is that, because I, I know that scene exactly, I can see it in my head. I can see every scene from this film he actually might have a bite or two of the French toast simply to please his mother, to please his father, and she takes it away. And you can see him have this, and this is the amazing thing about these performances, they're so nuanced, there's so much in there. And he looks up and you can tell that he's kind of startled. It's as if she's called his bluff and said, okay, you don't want to eat, you're not going to eat. I made your favorite, it's French toast, I'm going to make one offer, and if you can't, you know, bring yourself to try it or eat it, it's gone. And it's really brutal because you can see he's shocked by it's really a moment of anger it's a rage you know because what he's saying is I'm not better yet I'm still in danger and what she knows inside of herself is so am I and seeing it makes me have to just put a muzzle on it yeah oh it's such a powerful scene you can see how desperately they need to yeah. reach across and try to connect with one another but they just can't do it and it's staggering and heartbreaking when i see it because i think within my family even my mother who i love very deeply i felt in many moments of my life that i did not have access to the most wounded and pained part of her i could see it in flashes but mm. essentially it was kind of hidden from view because you know she was hiding it away even from herself Yeah, I I love that you're talking about that neediness because I think that's something else that really is brave about the movie that it brings up, right? And it's often uncomfortable to watch as the viewer to see the need that these both people to have to connect with each other. It reminded me actually of, of something you wrote, which I believe it was for The Rumpus. You said, though I love my family, neediness was totally shameful in the house I grew up in. Yeah. It's the reason I'm such a militant emotionalist. <laughs> the fact yeah. that I'm that way doesn't mean I'm over it. It's actually evidence that I'm totally hung up on it. Yeah, of course. And this is why, you know, the work I do on Dear Sugars, the work I try to do in my teaching and in my uh, in my writing especially is, uh, you know, to get to unbearable feeling. Uh, you know, the path to the truth always runs through shame and there's a certain amount of, uh, there's a lot of anxiety along the way too. And I, mm. I feel like people say, oh, well, you know, you're so vulnerable. So I thought, Not really. I'm trying very hard to reach people because I know people are in so much pain and I'm in so much pain and we've got so much that we could comfort one another ar- around um, if we just weren't so frightened of how much that can hurt and how vulnerable it makes us. But that's because I grew up in a family that very much frowned on deep emotion and it was really a sign of weakness. And there was within the subfamily of me and my brothers this kind of intense macho culture. But interestingly, Lily... My older brother and I, my older brother is a couple years older than me, and he was kind of like Buck in the film. He Mm. was a golden child. He was brilliant. He got into every college he applied to. Everybody sort of saw him as, as bulletproof, but inside he was tremendously anxious and struggling really with his own mental health. And he and I have always... Um, like you do with your favorite films, he and I can quote one another lines all the time. Sometimes he'll call me up on the phone and he'll just say, 
did I ask you if they gave you shock out there? <laughs> God, which the and swim coach says to him. That's the swim coach, oh right? And, you know, yeah. again, the, the coach is, is being insensitive, but the coach is also just being the coach. This is the way we treat mental illness in our culture. It's something that is frightening, something that we try to kind of um, see as a defect that can somehow be corrected if we just toughen up. That's the coach's line. That's why he has to quit the swimming team. Um, and another line that my brother will quote to me all the time, both my brothers, give her the goddamn camera. You know, this moment <laughs> yes. where... A family dysfunction, it comes out. <laughs> well, it's not just that. It's that Conrad has has just been really mm. allowed by the therapist. You've yeah. got to feel and express what you're feeling or it's going to explode again and it's going to explode in an act of self-destruction. You have to do this. And he really internalizes that yeah. lesson. And then there's this, you know, Cal, the father, is trying to take the perfect photo of Conrad and his mother and get them both smiling and he wants the perfect portrait and Conrad can tell this is this is nonsense. This is bull. This is not real. Yeah. This is fake. And he's so tired of the fakery. He's so tired of everybody faking it in his family. And it's just this moment where everybody is stunned and troubled, but the kid has done exactly what he needs to save himself. Connie, smile. Calvin. Just a second. Smile. Calvin, give me the camera. No, I didn't get it yet, Beth. Come on, give me the camera. Dad, give me the camera. I want a really good picture of the two of you, okay? No, but I really want to get a shot of the three of you men. Give me the camera, Calvin, Not please. until I get a picture of the two of you. Cal. Hang on a second. Give me the goddamn camera! He's really modeling for us the way to be vulnerable, right? I mean, I think about yeah. him in the scenes with um, his friend from the hospital, Karen, and, oh, you know, he's he's reaching out to her. He's trying to, to tell her, look, I'm not OK. Are you, are you also feeling this? And he's doing that um, repeatedly with the women in his life. It's not just yeah. his mother, but her. And then also um, Janine, the woman that he goes on a date with. Like he's trying to connect oh, and be yeah. vulnerable in that connection. Yeah. He says to Karen, you know, do you ever miss it? Yeah. Do you ever miss the hospital? And, and she's faking. And she says, no, it, you know. And he says, but that was where we had the laughs. And she says, but that was a hospital. In other words, you're sick and we were sick and I'm not that anymore. I'm, yeah. I'm putting on a thousand clowns. I'm over it. And of course, the devastating and pivotal moment in the film is when he tries to call her up again and, and discovers that she's killed herself. And that's really what precipitates the big kind of cathartic moment at the end. You know, it's, it's this lesson that human beings keep having to learn over and over again. You know, if you deny a truth inside you, it is somehow going to distort itself into evil and self-destruction, you know, within your life and within your relationships. And you're absolutely right that this relationship with Janine Pratt is um, crucial for him. In its way, she is part of his healing process, but it's not the centerpiece of the film. It's really a film about a family that cannot stay together because the grief that all the all the members of the family are experiencing around this loss are too devastating. Did it hurt? Uh, no, I don't know. I don't remember really. You don't want to talk about it? I, I don't know. Uh, I've never really talked about it to doctors, but not to anyone else. You're the first person who's asked. Why'd you do it? I don't know, it was like falling into a hole. It's like falling into a hole and it keeps getting bigger and bigger. And you can't get out. And then all of a sudden, 
it's inside. And you're the hole. And you're trapped and it's all over, something like that. So you mentioned really this scary. early in our conversation that, you know, this is a movie that you continue to watch throughout your life and uh, it always continues to give you more. And I just wonder if you could kind of expound on that, like how this movie has continued to change for you as you've gotten older and the more you've watched it, how you've grown together. Well, I will say that part of what my routine was growing up, even though I was probably, in a sense, the weakest and most anxious of the brothers, or maybe I was the the most anxious and therefore, um, in some way, I felt the weakest, but the fact that I was able to get into therapy as a kid and, you know, I've done a lot since then, those are all moments in the end of strength. I mean, you know... I've said outright on the podcast, you know, and, and in life, everybody, not everybody's going to get therapy. Not everybody wants it. Not everybody can afford it, but everybody deserves it. Uh, to have mm. a place you can go where you can get to the bottom of it. Go back to the beginning of it and get to the bottom of it. And I think that process is so widely maligned and shamed and misunderstood. And I think it's been sort of overtaken by antidepressants and psychopharmacology. But there really is nothing like, in my experience, that process of talking with somebody whose sole job is to listen to the story of your life and help you make sense of it. And I think in a sense, the film is so devastatingly precise about how people try to connect and fail to connect or how people connect um, but can only go so deep with one another. Um, and when, when a big traumatic event disrupts people's lives, some people can kind of arise from the ashes and really still lead a fully emotional life and, and get over it and forgive themselves and forgive the person who's died. But other people really can't. And that is just true of how life is. And the longer I've been alive, the more I see, um, you know, that it's a real struggle to examine your life. You know, I think Socrates talks about the, you know, the examined life, but that lets you in for a lot of sorrow. If you really are determined to do that work, I think it makes your life more meaningful. But it, as Dr. Berger said, it hurts to feel. Yeah. You know, it's not going to tickle. It's going to hurt. I love hurt. that line. A little advice about feeling, kiddo. Don't expect it always to tickle. It's funny. I, 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 watch, uh, I, I watch the film, you know, all the time, and I kind of have to be careful about it because I get so emotional. I, like, almost immediately start crying. Hmm. And I watched it, like, I don't know, maybe five or seven years ago with a whole bunch of people. And the person who wanted to watch it was my friend Chris Castellani, who's another amazing, brilliant novelist who lives here in Boston. And um, he said to me, we're, we're having an ordinary people party. I, I want to show the film. And I was like, Chris, you have no idea how <laughs> deeply into your party I am. And it was fascinating, Lily, the reaction, because the reaction was there were like seven or eight people watching the film and like six of them were watching and they were definitely feeling it, but they were kind of like, yeah, this is like a, you know, it's a film. It's kind of an older film. I see it's well-made. It's well-crafted. It's pretty intense. And Chris and I were bawling our eyes out. Yeah. We literally like sobbing, like quietly trying to keep it together. And uh, I think maybe artists and writers are, are particularly vulnerable to this film because it is a film about how you can only, uh, that the only way to really lead a full and meaningful life is to tell the truth, even and especially when that's painful. And I think 
part of the contract of being a writer or an artist of any kind is that you're at least trying to do that work. You're trying to get to unbearable feeling. You're trying to engage with productive bewilderment. What do we do in the face of loss? What do we do around the limits of our ability to love effectively in the world? What do we do when somebody is taken from us who, uh, and we can't get over it? Um, you know, these questions that are really at the center of most art and are really essentially kind of the, the form of bewilderment that art was intended to not solve for us, but help us feel less alone with. I, I never worried about you, and, and uh, I just wasn't listening. Well, I wasn't putting out many signals then. I, I really don't think you could have done anything. No, no, no. I should, I should have got a handle on it somehow. You know, I used to figure you had a handle for everything. You knew it all. And I know that wasn't fair, but you always made us feel like everything was going to be all right. I thought about that a lot lately. I really admire you for it. I don't admire people too much. They'll disappoint you sometimes. I'm not disappointed. I love you. I love you too. Almond is the co-host of one of my all-time favorite podcasts, Dear Sugars. He's also one of the most prolific and beautiful writers around. His latest book is called Bad Stories, What the Hell Just Happened to Our Country? To find out where you can buy it and for all of your Steve Almond goodness, go to stevealmondjoy.org. Next time, we're going to be talking about the lovely Steve Carell movie, Dan in Real Life, a movie that I love and watch whenever I need a warm hug and can't find a human nearby to give it to me. If you want to check that movie out before the conversation, you've got two weeks and can currently find it streaming on Amazon Video, iTunes, Google Play, YouTube, and Vudu. This Movie Changed Me is produced by Maya Terrell, Chris Hegel, Marie Sambalay, and Tony Lee Yu and is an On Being Studios production. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. And if you're feeling friendly, leave us a review. We've loved reading what's been posted thus far, and we promise that we take your thoughtful feedback into account. A special shout out to username might as well be DDS. We heard you. As much as I love him, I'm no longer going to mention Mr. Rogers every episode. I'm Lily Percy. Be kind to yourself and go watch a movie that makes you feel seen.